0: All right, as we head into our time in God's word, I promised last week that we would spend a little bit of time uh, this morning, first thing this morning, looking at uh, our church as a whole, kind of a state of the church uh, address and uh, certainly not going to be as formal as that. But I did want to take a little bit of time to think with you and to let you know from a pastoral perspective where our thoughts are um, about our church, about Grace Church of the Valley and. This local body and its goals and priorities and where it's been and where it's going. And I thought that maybe that would be a benefit to you. We're kind of in the transition time here between 2008 and 2009. And uh, with a new year uh, comes the opportunity to rethink the year past and to review the year past, to evaluate. Um, Ultimately, for the Christian, the new year doesn't change much, right? And we have very specific goals, very specific priorities, but it does create... um, an opportunity for us to evaluate. And so we've done that, and I wanted to share some of those things with you before we dive into the text of Matthew chapter 8 this morning and spend time with uh, the Lord Jesus himself. Um, 2008 was a great year. It's hard to believe that we're already standing up and saying things were a year long and they were great, but we are. We're over a year and a half into uh, the life of Grace Church. Uh, I think we're starting to walk. Uh, We're getting there. We're getting out of infancy and into toddlerhood. I don't know what the terrible twos are going to be like, but uh, um, I don't know if any of that carries over to church life. But it's been a good year. We've seen a number of things that have been so encouraging to us as a pastoral team. And uh, I'm just the talking head for that team, David Morris and Dave Muxlow Sr. And then our pastors in training, our PITs, Andy and Daniel. And uh, we have been so blessed by a number of components that the Lord has made obvious through 2008. And we look forward to those continuing and even growing more and more in 2009. Let me give you, um, just because I'm weird like this and I think in outlines, I'm going to actually do three three main points for our uh, discussion about our church. Um, I feel kind of ashamed, but it's just the way the brain works. So Grace Church has obvious fruits of grace, and I want to start with that. I want to look at those things that are most obvious to us about this church that are clearly fruits of God's grace, sovereign grace bestowed upon us. Um, These are character traits that have come from the church body, from you as a church family, but they have not come from you as the original source, because these attributes, these characteristics are attributed solely to God. It's his work through you that is accomplishing these These traits and therefore they are fruits of grace and I just wanted to point them out to you. It's always a good practice for us to uh, point out fruits of grace in others lives. If you don't do that, that's a great way to encourage someone. You see God's Holy Spirit producing fruit in them and you see changes in them that are clearly uh, originating with God. First of all, um, as far as the fruits of grace and this is surely not going to be exhaustive because of time. But there is an overwhelming love for God and God's people that is the expectation of gathering together with Grace Church. There's a love for God and a love for his people. And, and, and I don't know if you think about your love for God and for his people when you gather together, but it surely is an encouragement to us who have been given the accountability and the responsibility of giving oversight to this flock. Um, Love being one of the primary, if not the primary fruit of the spirit in the believer's life um, needs to be the default character trait. And we're so excited to see God bringing that about in your lives. If you want to, you can turn with me. I'll read you a couple passages that that bring this to mind when we read them as a pastoral team. First Thessalonians. Is. uh, A great little letter to the church. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we find the Apostle Paul saying this to this church. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. You don't need a letter for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And I think uh, what is so encouraging about seeing fruits of grace is the absolute gracious nature of those fruits. Um, These are things that God teaches his people to do, to love each other and to love him. But Paul goes on and he says in verse 10, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, it's their entire region, but that indeed is what you're doing throughout with all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more or to excel still more. If you have another translation in in, in the English language. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Paul says, I'm excited to see the love that is evident in the body at the church at Thessalonica. Because God teaches us to do that. And and we would echo Paul's gratitude. We would echo Paul's amazement at what God does in God's people. And uh, we're so thankful to see that fruit in you and with Paul We would be praying and encouraging you to excel more and more in that love, being more practical in the expressions of that love for God's people, being more committed to that um, love for God, which shows itself primarily in humble submission to his word, to his will. And uh, we're praying that you'll continue to grow in that. Another fruit of grace that's quite evident is a humility towards God's word. Um, This is probably the chief characteristic that I experience on a consistent basis, and that is God's gracious work in you as a church family, as you humble yourselves before God's word week after week. There are certainly churches where the teaching that goes on is met with resistance, and if you've never spoken publicly, you can feel resistance from those that you're teaching. And it's just such a blessing to have a humble submission and excitement about having our lives turned upside down by the word of God. I mean, I join you in that and I am so thrilled to see God's grace at work in your lives as you submit yourself and as you come eagerly with humility to learn and to be taught. And I'm amazed that grace is so active in you that you're even willing to be taught by me um, I'm amazed and others have shared their amazement that many of you who are quite my elder have shown such humility. That is a fruit of grace in allowing yourself to be taught by someone so much younger than you and someone who has so much to learn from you. And yet we come together and there's a humility around the word of God that is an obvious fruit of grace. Thirdly, and this is the last one that I'll share, but there are so many more we could spend our entire morning talking about fruits of grace at Grace Church. Um, the third one is patience in the simplicity of ministry. Uh, we as a team have been blessed by your patient excitement about the simplicity of life here at Grace Church when we gather together for our worship services. Um, we are a brand new ministry and many of you are coming from ministries that are not brand new. And we're just so thankful for the obvious signs of patience and excitement and commitment to growth and development as God provides the people that are capable of that. And as God provides the vision and the desire for those things to take place. And so the love for God and his people, the humility around his word that we share together each Lord's Day, and then the patient attitude that accompanies the simplicity of ministry at Grace Church is a total blessing. And I want to be the first one to say it is a total blessing that comes directly from the throne of grace, where we find help when we're in a time of need. And as sinful people who gather together every Lord's Day, every Lord's Day represents a time of need. And God has been so kind to give us mercy and grace upon mercy and grace through the sacrifice of our Savior and the power of his spirit. So those are some fruits of grace, and there are many more. Maybe today at lunch or around uh, your dinner table this evening, maybe it would be another opportunity to think not just about fruits of grace that God has worked in your lives um, as a body, um, as a part of the body of Christ and its expression here at Grace, but also in your families as you've seen the impact of God's word and the power of the Spirit on your lives individually. Always a blessing to think and to testify about those things. And I hope that's a habit for you. Secondly, Grace Church has real threats for this new year, and I'd, I want to share these with there are some very real threats that are in front of us and they are not external threats. In fact, each one of the threats that I want to talk with you about this morning is right here in the room. Because these threats come from us, they come from those that are part of our church family that aren't with us this morning, because these threats are all centered on our heart and our approach to being a church family, being exactly what the New Testament has outlined for us. And as I thought about the threats to our church, I thought of a number of different things that we could have discussed. But I was drawn back again and again to the final book of our New Testament, the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we find seven churches that are addressed by Christ himself. Um, John is caught up in this vision on the Isle of Patmos. He's on this island. He's been exiled there because of his Christian testimony. He's caught up into a vision and he sees, he gives us a glimpse of heaven and of the things to come. And we find this testimony in the book of Revelation. In chapter 2, he begins with the church of Ephesus and he addresses each one of these churches. The, The Lord of the church, the head of the church, Christ himself speaks to or speaks to John through the angel of the church, the messenger of that church. And I, I wanted to give you, I wanted to let you see the dangers that are in front of us as an infant church in 2009 and really throughout the life of our church as long as the Lord tarries um, in His coming. So let's look at these. First of all, there is a very real danger, and this is one that, that really started me in this text and started me in this chapter. Because I was thinking about the danger that is in front of us that we become puffed up with knowledge without affections. So knowledge that is devoid of affection, that is a heart response to the knowledge. And in the church at Ephesus, there in that first paragraph, you'll notice that the Lord says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And so this church has been faithful. They've held the truth. They've loved the truth. They've loved it so much that they stand against error and false teaching. I mean, this is a church that we would be thankful to be associated with. But notice what verse 4 says. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned your first love and the first love of the church is for its savior and its head. We have a danger in front of us of gathering knowledge from the word of God without developing and cultivating affections for the God of the word. And I could not be more serious. um, In warning you against this danger or about this danger. This is the danger of all churches that we share uh, fellowship with in our practice. Because of the seriousness with which we study God's word, we are in danger of feeling as if we are better because we studied God's word rather than knowing that grace is at work through God's word to develop affections in us for God that will produce fruit in us for his glory. So the first danger Is knowledge without affection. The second one comes just later in the chapter. And that is zeal without discernment. Zeal without discernment. And in chapter 2 and verse 14. We pick up the testimony of the Lord. To the church at Pergamum. Uh, Verse 13. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. You have. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas. My faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so here's Pergamum. And they're in the, in the heartbeat of the attack from the deceiver. From the evil one. From Satan himself. And so the Lord says, I know you're in the midst of unbelievable oppression. From the world system around you. From Satan's power. And yet you stood true. You were firm. You held to the faith. You declared the gospel. You say, well man, this must be an awesome church. Well, there's a, there's a weakness. And where there's a weakness, there's a potential danger for us. Verse 14 says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of Nicolait- Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and War against them with the sword of my mouth. And here's what happened in Pergamum. They were faithful. They stood true to the gospel. But they allowed, they allowed the infiltration of false doctrine. They were zealous for the truth, but without discernment. There's probably been no time in history like our time when discernment is needed. With the media of television, the internet... With the speed of communication in our day, discernment is at an all-time high as a need for the believer. You have any number of people coming to you and saying that they're speaking the truth. It's a danger for us that we would allow false teaching to infiltrate our body because we are zealous for the Lord without discernment that is cultivated by careful attention to the word And allowing the word to renew our minds. And prepare us to defend ourselves against error. Thirdly, there's another danger. Knowledge without affection. Zeal without discernment. And there is a danger of love without discipline. Keep going in Revelation chapter 2. And we come to the church at Thyatira. The final paragraph here is to this church. The messenger is to communicate that. Jesus knows your works, he says in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and servant and patient endurance and that your latter work exceeds the first. And so your patience and endurance exceeds even your. Love and faith you are enduring to the end. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So not only are you allowing allowing the infiltration of false teaching into the body, but at Thyatira, they were allowing one, a prophetess, to stand up and publicly declare these false teachings. They were loving. They were enduring the in the faith they were patient they were holding firm but they were not disciplining a clear false teacher from their midst we have here at grace church the potential that we would be puffed up with knowledge and not love that is knowledge without affection we have the potential of being zealous for the lord without discernment thus allowing infiltration Of false teaching and we have the danger of love without discipline that is some external warm affection for each other superficially without a serious concern that would lead us to even discipline those who would teach falsely in our midst. Fourthly as far as dangers goes we have a danger of an external Christianity without an internal change and this is universal this is not exclusive to Grace Church. But at the church at Sardis, this was their their battle, and this will be ours as well. And to the angel of the church at Sardis writes the words of him who has the seven spirits of God, verse 1 of chapter 3, and the seven stars, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Can you imagine this being the testimony of Grace Church from the head of the church, the Lord of the church? You have a testimony of being alive. There is word out there. In your surrounding communities that this is a place where the gospel is alive. But I know as the head, as the all-knowing one, I know you're dead. I know that church has no life. Verse 2 says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Here's the story. Get with it. And don't allow the external testimony of what's going on. To not be met by an internal reality of what is truly taking place in the lives of God's people. We're in danger of a form of Christianity. A a mere form, an outward look that looks Christian, that looks biblical, that is talked about as biblical. But unless we are faithful to commit ourselves to an ongoing walk with Christ individually, we as a body could be in danger of being classified as sleeping, dead, though there is a testimony of life. And then finally, at the end of chapter 3, we find the church at Laodicea. And this is probably the one that most of you have heard about or most of you know about. The church at Laodicea got a startling word from their head, from Jesus Christ. And our fifth and final danger is riches without stewardship. Notice verse 15. I know your works. you are neither cold nor hot. would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, and here's the here 's the words that condemn them. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The church at Laodicea could be the first church of America. Where the believers feel and profess that they are rich and without need. They are comfortable. They they are not in need of any help. And yet, the reality of their heart condition is wretched, pitiful, blind, poor, and naked. This is the Sermon on the Mount kind of heartbeat. One that recognizes who we truly are in comparison to God. And so these are the five dangers that are always going to be in front of us. And I am I am aware this morning and have been aware that these are in front of us this year in a special way. We have the potential in 2009 to no longer be in our first full year of ministry. We have the potential to become comfortable and therefore allow these dangers to take root in us. Knowledge that doesn't show itself in affections. Zeal without discernment, love without discipline, external without internal and riches without a sense of stewardship. We are rich people. Those who are rich and have a biblical perspective of who they are, are wise stewards of their resources. Would that we were hot and not cold, but definitely not lukewarm before the head of our church. OK, and then lastly, in this mini sermon before the sermon, um, I probably should have some like illustrations or something fun in the middle of this to keep it going. Um, thirdly, Grace Church has permanent biblical priorities. And this is really kind of the life. This is where the rubber meets the road. And I want to make sure you know what those are. We've got some priorities that don't change. And the day these priorities begin to change is the day we begin to see the, the vacuum of God's blessing and grace on our ministry. We have... Um, definite fruits of grace. We have real dangers and we also have some very real and permanent biblical priorities here. Here they are. And this is not exhaustive either, but this will help. If you're wondering about our commitments, here are four of them that are definite here at Grace Church, the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The centrality, the centerpiece of our existence as a church is our relationship to the head of the church, Jesus himself. And the central piece of our communication as a church, as we speak to the community in which we live and speak to the community even in which we gather for worship, The centrality of that message has to be the good news of Jesus Christ. And every single interaction we have as a church body with the word of God must be grounded upon the relationship we have to God through his son, Jesus Christ. So the centrality of the gospel cannot cannot leave or we have forfeited the very purpose, the very reason that we gather together. We gather together to worship as those saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We scatter from here to spread the news of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so central to everything we do is this message as revealed in the scriptures. Okay, that's a permanent commitment that cannot waver. When it wavers, you ought to be raising your hand and saying something is wrong. This is a permanent commitment of Grace Church. And for 2009, we want to be more committed to the gospel than we have been in 2008. We want to be better at declaring the gospel and keeping it central than we've been in 2008. And as a pastoral team, we're praying for the gospel to be active in your lives as those that are Christ's. Producing fruit in you. Those who are being saved, who are saved, who are being saved and who will be saved ultimately And we're praying for your proclamation of that message as central to your existence as a human being. Okay, number two, permanent biblical priority, sufficiency of the written word. We are committed to the sufficiency of the word of God, the Bible. God primarily and now in this time exclusively speaks to us through the vehicle of his word. And it is a sufficient word for us. Second, Timothy. Chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 communicate to us that it is sufficient because it comes from the sufficient God. He breathes it out. And it is good enough to fully equip the man of God for ministry. It's good enough for every time we gather together for instruction to come to the word. There's nothing lacking. Psychology doesn't fill it out. Clever stories and life experience don't fill it out. It is sufficient in and of itself to do the very work that God has set it out to do. And we're committed to that permanently as a way of life. If you're new with us, I trust you'll see this quickly to be our pattern. If you're not new with us, I hope you know this is what we're committed to. This is the backbone behind why we do what we do. Okay, These are our. Immovable biblical priorities: the centrality of the gospel, the sufficiency of the written word, thirdly, the priority of called and qualified servant leadership. Second Timothy chapter two is a very important passage to us as a young church. Second Timothy chapter two and verse two says, really, in verse one, you then, my child, Paul says to Timothy, this young pastor, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, be a strong leader." And here's what that will look like. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. A permanent priority of Grace Church of the Valley is a called and qualified leadership that continues to produce a called and qualified leadership. There's nothing on our hearts as pastors more than this as a, a priority for 2009. Setting ourselves to identifying those men who are faithful and preparing them to feed you and to equip you as a flock. This has to be the ongoing practice. This has to be the permanent reality, the permanent priority. Called and qualified men of God set apart for servant leadership, called and qualified ladies that are set aside for servant leadership. This has to be an ongoing process. Those of you who are here that have gifts from the Holy Spirit for the betterment of the body of Christ in leadership. We want we are praying for you to be identified. And some of you are. And for us then to take every opportunity to prepare and to share and to pass on to other faithful men. What has been passed on from faithful men to us, which was passed on from faithful men to those faithful men. Generation upon generation upon generation. This is how. The church of Jesus Christ is sustained through the ages. And then finally, we are permanently committed, and we are committed in 2009 to the necessity of the gospel implications. Okay? And maybe that's just a fancy way of saying we are committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We are committed to those who profess to be followers of Christ. that has ramifications on the lives of those individuals. There is no shortage of New Testament material that communicates that the gospel affects life. And those who claim to be followers of Christ, those who would put the badge of Christian on them, they are to then live in such a way. In fact, Ephesians chapter one says that they're to walk in love. They're to walk in a manner that imitates their father in heaven. So these are permanent for us. And these are the priorities that are guiding our prayer life as we prepare for 2009. We want to be faithful with the gospel in 2009. We want to be faithful to the word of God and the handling of the word of God in 2009. We want to be faithful to prepare and train up and equip and pass on to faithful men the the apostolic word in 2009. And we want to be committed in our preaching and teaching and in our fellowship and our grace groups and our one another's. We want to be committed to uh, realizing and prioritizing the implications of the gospel on our lives. These are central to us. They flesh themselves out every time we're together. Maybe you've wondered why, why we do what we do as far as our gatherings. There is only one primary uh, permanent responsibility for the church to gather, and that is to come together For corporate worship and corporate Instruction Included in that requirement Is a, a life lived Together and it is more challenging Today than it was in the first century to live Life together therefore we Provided an outlet one outlet Out of all the myriad Of opportunities for you to live Life together in your grace groups Regional groups that come together Outside of that, we add on extra instruction from God's Word because we're convinced that we need it more than what we receive. And so we have Sunday school, we have Sunday evening service, we have ministries to different age groups for the sake of teaching them the Bible. These are why we do what we do, and these are the permanent biblical priorities, some of the biblical biblical priorities that are permanent here at Grace Church. It's been a good year. There's been a lot of grace it's evident in you. There's been a lot of love for one another and for God. There's been a lot of humility around his word. And there's been a lot of patience with the ministry work that is going on here at Grace Church. And we look forward to that changing and growing and developing, but never being left behind in the next year. Okay? Growing always still more and more in what the Spirit himself teaches us through the word. All right. Nowhere are those implications of the gospel, that final biblical priority. Nowhere are they more on our minds than in the book of Matthew. And so finally we come to Matthew chapter 8. And for the last few minutes I want to look at just a brief paragraph from Matthew 8. That communicates the high cost of following Jesus Christ. Following Christ comes with a high demand This is seen throughout our New Testament and clearly it has already been seen in the communication at the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus has outlined that to be a part of his kingdom means giving away everything. And yet it's going to get very personal. In Matthew, chapter eight, verses 18 through 22, things get more personal than they have yet, because Jesus addresses specific individuals who verbally claim they want to follow Jesus And yet he responds to them not with a gratitude and thank you and pat them on the back or not with a quickly pray this prayer or not raise your hand and walk down the aisle. He answers them with a statement that proves they are actually not committed to true discipleship, to truly following Jesus Christ. And it proves that they have not counted the cost of what it is to be a Christ follower and. These are the implications of being followers of Jesus Christ. Here we find them in Matthew chapter 8 verses 18 through 22. And you can read along as I read this out loud. Now, when Jesus saw the crowd around him or saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. Um, Just pause right there. We don't even know where he is. Um, Why is he going to the other side and the other side of what? I mean, what's going on here? Jesus is on the west side because I know you hang out in your Bible maps during Sunday afternoons. Uh, he's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, later on, you can go back to the unused section. And he is gathered there near Capernaum. And there are so many people around him that he wants to get to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which to us is more like the, the Lake of Galilee. Okay? When we say the word sea, you're thinking enormous. He wants to get out. People could still see him. He wants to go the other side of the lake for the sake of alleviating the crowds that are pressuring around him. All right. Verse 19. And a scribe came up to him or came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Um, Worthy words. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. All right. Deflated individual number one. All right, let's move on to deflated individual number two. Another of the disciples, that is the general term of disciple, the followers, the crowd that has gathered around him. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, understand in the context here, we have the word disciple used of this individual and it's spoken of as another one. So we have two disciples quote-unquote disciples involved in this account with the Lord Jesus. And yet what Jesus proves with his response to both of them is that neither of them have accurately assessed the cost of following him. And therefore, they are supposed disciples. They are disciples in name only. They are nominal disciples of Jesus Christ. And nominal disciples of Jesus Christ are not disciples of Jesus Christ. They will not know the kingdom. They will not know the true forgiveness of the father. Notice just two quick points. This is such a brief section and it is so to the point with Matthew's writing that it won't take but a minute for us to see the weight of what is here. But notice these two demands that Jesus places with his response. Number one, Jesus demands abandoning worldly stability. He demands that if you're going to be a disciple of mine, if you're going to follow me, you need to abandon your confidence in worldly stability. Or security, as our world likes to talk about. These are just my security issues. Jesus says there has to be an abandonment of your earthly stability if you are to be a disciple of his. This fellow who comes, who's identified in verse 19 as a scribe, is a copyist, this would be one who was very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures because his whole life was given to writing the scriptures out and copying them and copying them and copying them. And here comes a scribe who would have been well versed in the law of Moses, who would have been understanding what was in front of him, the potential of this one being the promised one, the Messiah. And here the demand for following Christ slaps this scribe squarely in the face. Because he says, I will follow you anywhere. And yet, Jesus perceives that the reality of the heartbeat behind this claim is that I will follow you anywhere as long as I have a comfortable roof over my head, as long as life is not upended, as long as my basic human securities are met. And so he responds with these words in verse number 20. And he said to this man, he said to him, Foxes have holes, rodents have somewhere to go, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, Jesus is not primarily dealing with his poverty here, he's dealing with his homelessness. Our Lord ministered for three years on the earth and had no home. Uh, he was a miserable failure at the American dream, right? He did not live in the suburbs. He didn't buy a house. He didn't settle down into a 30-year mortgage. He, he didn't have any of that. There was, there was no security to him. He moved from home to home. He, he slept in a different place almost nightly. And he says to the scribe, you profess to want to follow me anywhere. You're willing, you say, to follow me anywhere. Do you understand? Have you counted the cost that if you follow me, you leave behind all of your earthly security? All of the things that the world grasped for stability in this life are left behind. This is a startling response from the Lord. The gospel of Jesus excludes those who come holding to a self-centered need for their own comfort and ease. The gospel demands surrender of everything and promises the provision of greater things. Ultimately of an eternity in the presence of Christ and the glories of heaven. Maybe you've had a pet at one point. We had a dog growing up and our dog when she was aware that there was something going on out of the usual, when she got scared in our house, which was often, she would scurry off to a place that was very difficult for us to find her and which always supplied a covering over her head, right? So it was either the deepest part underneath my sister's bed or it was the nearest coffee table it was whatever she could get her little tail tucked between her legs crawling along the floor she wanted to get underneath of something that provided for her the sense of being in an enclosed space a safe zone we who live here in our culture in our society are not much different than that we live with an expectation that That life goes on as planned and life is normal when I have a nice roof over my head, when my when my clothing is nice, when my life is wrapped up with nice cars and nice things. And Jesus says, if you're trusting in any of that, if that is the basis of your security, you have not understood what it is to follow me. Because to follow me is to leave all of that behind and to lay it all before me. I may or may not take it, but to follow me. Is to trust no longer in worldly security and stability. Jesus cannot be an add on program to your life. To follow him is to have him exclusively on the throne of your life. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker Jesus is my co pilot. Wrong. He's the pilot. I'm not even in the cockpit. The door's closed. He has to be squarely in control. That is what it is to come to him. Whether we understand this fully at the point of conversion. Whether we could articulate this when God saves us. May or may not be true. But this much is true. One who is brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Is at the end of themselves. They say my hands are off. Take my life. Use me. Wherever and in whatever way you want i'll follow you no matter what the cost this is discipleship 101 from the lord jesus himself following jesus is an all or nothing decision now goes on gives us another example and another disciple said to him in verse 21 lord let me first go and bury my father Totally different scenario here. We don't know who this individual is, but this is a cultural reference that Matthew records for us. This disciple who wanted to go and be a follower of Jesus wanted to do so as soon as he had wrapped up his earthly affairs. And so, first of all, Jesus demands abandoning worldly stability. But secondly, Jesus demands abandoning worldly priorities. Now, I I was thinking about this even this morning as I was praying for our time. We're in danger of just not getting this. Because this is so radical. And so outside of our normal way of thinking. And apart from God's. Gracious work through his spirit, we will miss a proper understanding of what Jesus says right here. Here comes a guy, he says, "Lord, I want to follow you, but I, I need to go and take care of something and and the something that I need to take care of is a very important something it 's his family, and it 's not just his family; he needs to deal with his father and Bible students go back and forth about whether the dad is already dead and needs to be buried or whether he 's almost dead and needs to be buried or whether He might die and is rich and the son wants to get his inheritance before committing to following Jesus. Whatever the case, he says, I want to come to you, Christ. I want to follow you as the Messiah, but I want to do it on my own timetable and with my own set of priorities. And Lord, surely, you know that family is important. And the Lord does know that family is important. It is the Lord himself who communicates to us through his word that to depart from caring for one's family is worse than an unbeliever. It's a worse testimony than an unbelieving heart to depart from caring for one's parents and to utilize those funds for your own gain. Jesus himself will condemn completely. And yet right here he presents for us a startling Commentary on what it is to be his disciple. To be the disciple of Christ is to depart from an earthly, worldly priority system. The profession of this individual is more Lord or master. I want to be your follower, but I need to get my own issues taken care of first. Whatever practical priorities replace the superiority of Jesus Christ. They must be removed to be a true disciple. Jesus responds with a play on words. Notice verse 22. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And the first dead is spiritually dead. Let the the spiritually dead deal with the physically dead. You just follow me right now. You set your priorities in line that I take precedent over everything else. I take precedent over your family. Jesus is going to come back to this. In Matthew chapter 10. Which we'll study shortly. And he's going to say. If you don't hate your father and mother. Then you're not worthy to follow me. And we, I, I don't get. Well, in comparison to the love and devotion. And allegiance to Jesus Christ. Our affections. Our commitment. Our devotion to our family. In contrast is viewed as hatred and when the two are pitted against each other and my love for christ is pitted against a commitment and allegiance to my family jesus christ always wins in the life of the true disciple this is the point that jesus drives home now obviously be careful christians go to funerals okay um and and we mourn and we care for our family members who pass away and we care for the family members who are left Closely, who are still living. It's not at all what Jesus is communicating. Jesus is sticking to the heart of the matter with this individual who claims he wants to be a follower. Jesus is saying, No, you don't, because you don't understand that to follow me is to leave behind all of those earthly priorities. I take precedent over all of them, I am exclusive. In my lordship says Jesus Christ. Christ is more. Must be more as a true disciple. To you and to me than our family. Now I don't know that I've ever experienced anywhere. And I've lived in five or six different states. And served the Lord in that many or more churches. I don't know that anywhere In the country has more. Of a devotion and commitment. To family than right here. Right here. We understand. The the benefit of. And we are committed to. Our families. Understand this. If that commitment. Is set up as superior. To your commitment to Jesus Christ. You have misunderstood. The count You have misunderstood the cost of following Jesus. You've misunderstood the price. You've not counted the cost appropriately. So when that family comes in competition with that Lord, that Lord always must win. Jesus points out that both of these individuals had a fundamental misunderstanding of what it was to be a Christian In Matthew chapter eight, D.A. Carson says the point is not so much that people should not be concerned for their parents, but that if concern for parents becomes an excuse for not following Jesus or for delay in following Jesus, then concern for parents, as important as it is, is being too highly valued. If your family is keeping you from obeying what your Lord has clearly communicated and your affections for your family and your Uh, allegiance to family unity is keeping you from obedience to what the Lord has demanded of you, then you have a misplaced priority. And as a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you are in fact in Christ, that must be corrected. Because he will not play second to anyone. Being a disciple of Jesus is a costly matter, and it is one to be weighed fully before a rush to profession, a rush to claiming to be a follower. That is the point of Matthew chapter eight. Here in the middle of the miracles, we see the the powerful Messiah King, Jesus himself, saying, here's what it is to follow me. I demand an abandonment of worldly securities and I demand an abandonment of worldly priorities. I demand all of you. And in return, I will grant you the riches of heaven, the grace of heaven, the forgiveness of the father. I will give to you righteousness that I have lived in replacement of your wicked sin for which I have paid at the cross. The costs are high. To be a follower of Christ, the benefits are unimaginable. The blessings are are unimaginable because apart from christ they are impossible now unbeliever you're here this morning and you're not a true disciple of jesus christ you may profess to be one you may not profess to be one you may be here and just curious about what christians believe and we're glad you're here but if you're here this morning Responding to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, that is turning from your sinful way, acknowledging the guilt that your sin has brought. Scripture says that your sin, unbeliever, has brought a guilt that can only be paid off with eternal death. That's a sad story. That's a bad news story. But if you will turn and place your faith in someone else who stood in as a substitute for your guilt, who bore your punishment. Who died in your place. If you'll place your faith on someone else. If you'll believe and trust that someone for your salvation. And that someone must be Jesus of Nazareth. The Messiah King of Matthew chapter 8. But if you will believe. If you will turn from your sin. And place your faith in him. He will forgive you. If you will come empty handed to Christ. Removing your schedule, removing your priorities, removing your stability, coming with nothing, bankrupt, empty handed. He will save you. He will save you, professor of being a follower of Christ who is not a follower of Christ. He will rescue you. Following him will cost everything your heart clings to now for joy, stability, and comfort, but will afford you the joy of forgiveness before a holy God and an eternal reward of heaven. Now, believer, how does Matthew chapter 8 apply to us as God's people, as children of God, adopted sons and daughters, true disciples? This year, let's give ourselves to setting our Messiah on his proper place, the place where he began his relationship with us, which is on the throne of our lives, in the driver's seat of our lives. This is your Messiah speaking to the radical life change that is already yours. And now the question is, are you, am I walking in a manner worthy of our calling? Or have we allowed the world to conform our thinking so that we no longer distinctly live, distinctly think distinctly process life as believers we're back to the same issue that we deal with on a consistent basis will we allow the word of god to renew our minds to reinform us so that the result being we're transformed into the image of, of jesus christ our savior or will we allow the world system around us and its message to conform us to the world Pursue the removal of any and all competitors for your affections, your trust, and your obedience. Reestablish a commitment to the supremacy of Christ, not just in your verbal words, but in your lifestyle, in every way. And allow Matthew 8 to be a starting place for bringing yourself before your Savior and laying your life down and asking what things are challenging and competing. For his rightful place on the throne of your heart. Unbeliever, the gift of salvation is before you. Believer, the ongoing gift of grace is before you. Father, thank you for Matthew chapter 8. Just a quick study of a very brief paragraph. And here at the front end of a new year for our church family. a, A new year of living life together. Of being encouraged by one another and scattering out to share the truth with others, we desire to be marked as true disciples. Those who willingly and gladly abandon worldly stability and securities. We don't need them, we have you. We willingly and joyfully abandon worldly priorities. Those things that our cultures hold most dear. Those things that are represented in the lifestyle at the very core of our society. We don't need those. We have you. We follow you. You are greater than our family. You are greater than our house. You are greater than our possessions. You are greater than our job. You are greater than... Than our comfort and our ease. You are greater than our life without persecution. You are more than all of these. And we confess that we struggle daily. With your competition in our lives. May you reign alone on the throne of our hearts we pray. Because we desire for you to be glorified through us. Individually and as a corporate body. As Grace Church. Use us for you in 2009 we pray in the name of our christ and because of the intercession of the spirit amen